Let's turn together to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Uh, many years ago, I was a, uh, a young husband. I was new in ministry. And I remember hearing James Dobson, well-known author, teacher, say that he wanted to get to the end of his life without stepping on a landmine. That is, without committing the kind of moral failure that, like a landmine, blows up. Blows up your family, blows up your, your ministry, blows up reputation. Um, and I remember when I, you know, heard him say that, I remember thinking, I, I want that too. And I still do want that. There are few things more devastating than standing on the edge of a crater of destruction that's of your own making. Seeing people that you have hurt, damaged, maybe even devastated by your foolish and sinful choices and knowing that you can't undo what you did. That's exactly where David is standing as he writes Psalm 51. The inscription reads, if you read it with me, for the director of music, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. David's actions had called devast caused devastation. This, Psalm 51, is a cry for restoration. And it really gives us a roadmap for restoration from any kind of damage from sin. Let's read the first 12 verses. Then we're going to pray that God blesses this time in his word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Father, we pray as we come into your word that you will do the work you can do. That, Lord, the light of your Holy Spirit will shine upon our hearts, 
and bring conviction, bring rescue. Lord will bring restoration to our souls and also we pray to our relationships and wherever damage has been done and most wonderfully we thank you for the restoration you provide us in our relationship with you through Jesus Christ so God we just ask you to do a work Lord you see every heart here this morning you see every heart that's watching online and we pray you search us Lord because we need it and we need your light we ask it in Jesus name Amen. I've titled this message, Devastating Restoration. Uh, typically, when we hear the word devastating, we think of something that is destructive, that's damaging, painful. But the word devastating can also mean something that is extremely powerful and effective. For instance, Jim had a devastating backhand at tennis, or the play had a devastating effect on its audience. Extremely powerful and effective. Sin devastates in the destructive way. That's what sin does. Sin never heals. Sin never strengthens. It always devastates. It's what it does. It can devastate in a sudden explosion like what happened with David and we're going to look at his story in a few moments uh, or sin can devastate in a slow gradual increments like erosion but either way sin devastates it destroys God restores what sin has devastated he's good at restoring the gospel is all about God's restoration for our souls. Jesus Christ, through his life and his death and his resurrection, restores us to relationship to God. He takes those who are lost, who are broken, who are devastated, who have a past that is devastating, and he brings healing and restoration to that life. He brings something beautiful from the ashes of devastation and he restores us into right relationship with God our Father, not just as distant strangers, but as children who are beloved of God. God does devastatingly beautiful restoration in our lives when we come in faith to Jesus Christ. But we often think of faith. There's another word that's connected very closely to faith that is necessary for for the, the restoration that God brings. And David gives us in Psalm 51 a roadmap to that restoration. We see this other component in Psalm 51. We see it and hear it in the early messages of the apostles. No matter what the sin is, no matter what the damage is, restoration is available when we repent. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance. So I want to give hope this morning to everyone, to the one who stepped on a landmine, 
Maybe when I described that, you, you thought of a cer- certain situation or a certain person or a, a certain group of people, certain actions you p- committed, and it blew up. I want to give you hope this morning and next week through Psalm 51. God does devastating restoration in our lives. He's able to restore I don't care what it is. David gives us a roadmap in Psalm 51. Repentance. But before we go there, it's worth our while to take a walk through the events that happened in David's life that got him to the crater he's standing on now. And the origins of that story and that event begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. We'll have it up on the screen. God gives us a brutally honest account of David's fall, but not so that we can cluck our tongues and say, how could he have done that? If he was a real man of God, he would never have done that. That's not why God gave us this. He gave it to us to, first of all, show us God's grace and redemption at work. But also, I think, to give us some warnings. You see, I still feel like I did some years ago when I was young. Yes, God can restore the worst of landmines, but I would rather not step on those landmines. Amen? Amen? Amen. Yeah, I was going to like, I think that's like pretty universal. Uh, I'd rather not. So we're going to learn a few lessons as we walk through David's story that hopefully can spare us some of the pain and devastation that happens. Next week in the second part of this, we're going to meditate more on Psalm 51 and the beautifully devastating restoration Jesus offers all those who come to him with faith and repentance. 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Verse 1 tells us it was springtime. It's when the weather begins to warm up, the flowers begin to bloom, and kings went off to war. At this point in David's history, he has been the king of Israel for Almost 20 years. And if there was one word that you could use to describe his reign, it would be 
success. 20 years of success. He has everything he touches, touches turns to gold. You ever met anybody like that? Everything he does comes out right. Every decision he makes seems to be the right decision. Over these 20 years, Israel has expanded its territory to larger than it has ever been. They are prospering economically. There's peace. And when there is war, those around fear the army of Israel. Because David is a warrior. And he has assembled mighty men around him. And when they go to war, people tremble. He has been successful in everything. He does nothing he has undertaken has failed. The trajectory is upward and to the right for David. And all that success has earned David a reservoir of trust in Israel. Because he's not only a successful king, he's a good king. He's a good man. He's a shepherd of Israel. He is a man after God's heart. He's a man of integrity. People love him. People are loyal to him. This is a great place, and it's springtime. And David is loving the weather, and he decides, I'm going to sit this one out. And nobody questions that because he's earned it. He's earned that. Nobody questions his courage. Nobody questions his military strength. But he's earned some time off. So he gives the command to Joab, and he stays home. David is at the brink of his greatest failure. But all he can see is tremendous success. Ironically, our greatest failures are often flowing from our greatest successes. The times when we are most vulnerable to stepping on a landmine isn't when things are going bad, it's when things are going good. It's when things are great, when we think we have life by the tail, when the trajectory of our lives is upward and to the right. We make a couple of good decisions and we start to think we can't make a wrong decision. We can start to think we're the smartest person in the room. And we stop listening to those that disagree with us or have a different perspective than us. And we become vulnerable to stepping on a landmine. If you look at the trajectory of some of the great scandals in history and even scandals going on today, both in companies and churches and organizations, so often men that fall... They fall at the peak of success because they're lulled into letting down their guard. They have shut off any dissenting voices and have accumulated yes-men around them and who say, you are so great. They become too big to fail. Only you can't get too big to fail. Listen, trials and failures and hardships can be hard on our soul. They can be difficult to walk through. But I want to tell you something, success is even harder. Good times can be even harder. As one person said, for every one person, or for every ten people who can stand adversity, there's only one person who can stand prosperity. 
So all this success has insulated David from criticism. He knows what he's doing. Nobody questions that. He decides to sit this one out. Nobody questions that. Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed. What's he doing on his bed? He should be at battle. He's in bed. He got up from his bed. He walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof of a palace, the palace, he saw a woman bathing. Now, I have no idea. I don't know what the circumstances are. I don't know why Bathsheba was bathing outside. I don't know what the, you know, the arrangement was. But David is bored. He's restless. He's got time on his hands. So he gets up and he starts to stroll around the roof. And lo and behold, he sees what the Bible says is a very beautiful woman bathing. There's, by the way, there's biblical wisdom in the saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop. I mean, it's not good for us to have too much time on our hands. I just want to say that because we do live in a time when we can have a lot of leisure. And, and I believe in taking time off. I believe we need to unbend the bow. We need to be refreshed. We need to have recreation. We need to have, you know, those times. That, but, but, but there's a reason why God gave us six days to work and one day off, not six days to have off and one day to work. It's not good for us to have too much time on our hands, working hard, being productive, being busy doing what God has called us to do, and being where God's called us to be is good for our souls, because it can help us. How much pain and devastation could have never happened if David had been on the battlefield? And I know that sounds strange to our culture, but he would, you know, it would have been, it's a healthy thing for him to be out there breaking heads, and you know, he had too much downtime. So as he wanders around, he sees this beautiful woman. He sends a servant to find out who she is. The servant comes back and says, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This servant isn't naive. He knows exactly what is in the mind of David. And so he, he brings a subtle... Usually when you said who somebody is, you mentioned who their dad was, who their lineage is. But he goes on to say, Bathsheba, she is the daughter of Eliam. And then he stresses, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And that should have been the end of the matter. Up to this point, David has not crossed a line that can't be uncrossed. There's, but desire... For something has gripped David's heart and he sends for Bathsheba. And the line is crossed. A line is crossed that can't be uncrossed. Now David probably thinks we can just, you know, forget this ever happened and go on with life and everything's good. And then Bathsheba sends word to him, I am pregnant. At this point, at this point in his life, David has a decision to make. He could, he could confess his sin to God, to the leaders and close advisors in his life, and most importantly, to Uriah, as painful as that would have been. And there would have been consequences to David's sin but God could have dealt with him in a different way 
there could have been an escape from all the devastation that was going to follow because of his foolish, sinful choices. David tries to cover up his sin. That's, that's the next step, isn't it? When we do something we don't want anybody to know about, we try to cover it up. So David brings Uriah home for a few days, hoping that Uriah will go home to his home, to his wife, and he'll never know. But Uriah is too good a man to do that. He sleeps outside on the stoop of the palace. He says, my comrades are out there in the field. I'm not going to go home to the comfort of my wife and home while they're out there. So that cover-up doesn't work. So David sends Uriah back to the field, back to Joab, but he says, I have a note with you for Joab's eyes only. He gives him a note, and that note says, put Uriah in the front of the battle where it's the hottest, and then as it gets hot, as the battle is raging, pull all the men back except for Uriah so that he is struck down and killed. Can you imagine Joab as he reads this? This is his own... This is one of his faithful, loyal soldiers. This is evil. The Bible clearly tells us, David confesses it, this is evil. This is an evil. Uriah hasn't done anything wrong. He's a good man. The evil going on here is in David's heart. The Bible says clearly that God, David was a man after God's own heart, but he's not a man after God's own heart in this instance. His heart is full of evil. He is covering his sin even to the point of murdering a good man. I want to I pause right now because I want to just ask you to ask yourself this question. Is there a rooftop you're standing on right now? that you should not be standing on? Is there something you are looking at and desiring that you should not be looking at and desiring? Because that's how it starts. Sin is subtle. It's gradual. There are warning points where God says, you can turn around now. You can turn around now. Is there a rooftop? You're flirting with something. Maybe a, a, a co-worker in the office you work at. Maybe going to inappropriate sites on the Internet. Maybe you're sneaking around with something, whatever it is, sneaking around doing something that you hope nobody finds out about. You know what sneaking is. We all do. And by the way, sneaking can be small. I, years ago, I was counseling a married couple, and they had a number of things to work through. But one of the things that they shared with me was that they had agreed to go on a healthy diet together. And the husband was on the way home from work buying candy bars and eating them and then acting like he didn't. And she found a rapper one time in the car. She found it a second time, and it really hurt her trust. I mean, 
I don't know where you stand on candy bars. I don't particularly think it's that big an issue. I know of no scripture against it, but if you're not being honest, if you're sneaking, people will wonder what else. Or why would you act like you're not eating candy bars? When you're, just tell your wife about the candy bars, that's all. Guys, right now, lean over to your wife and say, I buy candy bars on the way home, if you do. The point is, when we're sneaking, we're covering something. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. That's a beautiful promise for all of us. Covering sin never goes well, but when we confess those sins and repent, God gives us mercy, mercy that restores us. That's what Psalm 51 is all about, but David isn't there yet. David is not there yet. David, at this point in time, he has committed adultery. He has tried to cover up that sin with Uriah. He has now murdered Uriah. We didn't read the story, but what happens is in that battle, they, Joab does exactly, by the way, Joab is a conniving, malicious, he's a great fighter, but he's not a good man. And he does exactly what David asked him to do, but he knows he's got leverage on David. So he puts some men in the front. When things are going bad, he pulls back, but a few of those men, a few of those men, not just Uriah, a few of those men are killed because of that desire to kill Uriah. Think of the devastation right now. I trust none of us have this kind of devastation in our lives. He has committed adultery. He has tried to deceive people. He has then entered a conspiracy to murder. And because of the collateral damage of that conspiracy, several good warriors are dead. Their families will get the notice your husband, your father, your son died in the war. Why? Only because David wanted to cover up his sin. That's the only reason why. David is looking at a devastated life. His integrity is devastated. His reputation is devastated. Lives are devastated. Families are devastated. Bathsheba's marriage vows to Uriah have been devastated. Her heart gets devastated when the word comes back that her husband is dead. Devastation, devastation, devastation. And worst of all, David's relationship with God is devastated. Now after a while, David takes Bathsheba as his wife. But both of them know the dark beginning of this relationship. And I don't want you to think, well, David must be happy because he got what he wanted. He's married now to Bathsheba. He is not. We will see next week in Psalm 51 that he's anything but happy. He is a tormented man. It haunts him. And then God sends a gift to David in the form of a prophet named Nathan, who will tell him, the truth. I want us to read chapter 12, verse 1 through 7. <clears throat> the
The Lord then sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare it a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Listen to David's response. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. God goes on to say, I gave you so much. The man has wives. He has concubines. He has riches, power, everything. And God said, if that wasn't enough, just ask me. I would have given you more. But you took the one thing, one wife Uriah had. Nathan pulls no punches. No punches. He tells them, because of the sword that you caused, you caused to strike down Uriah, the sword will never depart from your house. There will be a generational violence that will now descend upon your home because of what you did. Nathan pulls no punches. And David does something that nobody expects, something that people in power rarely ever do. He repents. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's, there's no excuse. No blame shifting. He could have had Nathan killed right on the spot. But he doesn't. He repents. And I just want to remind us this morning, the road from devastation to devastating restoration begins with repentance. Psalm 51 is written from the edge of a crater, but David knows God can restore what's been so destroyed. God can redeem our craters. He can turn them into something redemptively beautiful. He doesn't take away the consequences. He doesn't remove all the pain, but he is able to turn our devastation into devastating restoration. As we close this morning, if you're on the roof, if, as I shared about that, you thought of something, you're on a roof, you're looking at something you shouldn't be looking at, you're considering doing something or started to do something you shouldn't be doing, get off the roof. Get off the roof. The pain and devastation will haunt you far after the pleasure of whatever it is you're looking at or considering doing is gone. Get off the roof. Don't linger there. Get, get where God's called you to be. Do what God's called you to do.
it's far better to avoid stepping on the landmine when possible. But for the one here, maybe you're looking at real devastation, a relationship, a situation. I want to say this. There is so much hope in Christ for you. There's so much hope. You see, and we'll talk more about this next week, but I just want you to know God can take those ashes and turn them into something beautiful. Please know that. Please know that. You see, some people they spend their life feeling horrible and condemning themselves about it. That's not what we're looking at. Repentance isn't condemnation. Condemnation will keep you flagellating yourself for what you did, but it'll never move you to the beautiful restoration God has for you. Repentance is just confessing it to God, saying, I was wrong, and saying, God, help me. And we're going to see that in Psalm 51. So please don't walk out of here saying the message says I should condemn myself and hit myself for the, no, no, no. You, have, you, you were in a different message if you heard that. Repentance is just saying like David said, I have sinned against the Lord. I, I, I'm wrong. And then we move into Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. I want to just ask this question as we close this morning. I want to ask uh, Brad and Becky, if they would come back up. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Is there a Nathan in your life? Are there people you trust and allow to say anything to you, even if it's painful, even if it's not what you want to hear? And is your heart postured to hear without excuses, without blame shifting, without shooting the messenger? Think about your history with people. When people bring you something hard, I, I, this is something I've had to work at, still have to work at. Let me just say for the person who says, yeah, yeah, I, you can say anything. Ask your spouse how it feels when they come to you and ask you if it brings something hard to you. Because I know I spent a lot of years where I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, okay, bring it on, honey. You know, let me know. I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. Be honest with me, and you better be prepared for my comeback. I've done that for years, you know, and maybe you do that. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm ready to listen. You know, let the arms down and just say, say it. Yeah, it's painful. Yeah, we don't like it. Yeah, there's something that rises up. They may not even be right. Make it easy for people to bring truth to you. That's worth our pursuing. That's the beautiful posture of David. He had all the power and authority in the world, but none of that came to the front. What came to the front was repentance. I have sinned against the Lord. And that gives us tremendous hope for restoration. Do you realize it was after David did all of this that God said, he is a man after my own heart. That does not speak big things about David. That speaks big things about God. Devastating restoration. That's what he experienced, and it's available to you and to me this morning. Father, we thank you for your amazing mercy, compassion, forgiveness, and cleansing. And Lord, I pray for that person who right now is just feels just the tears or the heartache or the guilt of whatever damage 
that they're thinking about. I pray you would bring hope into their heart. And if their heart has been defensive or protective of themselves or trying to justify that you would help them to realize there's freedom in just letting go of all that and just confessing with a repentant heart, God, I'm tired. I've sinned against you. Have mercy on me. Thank you that in Jesus we have an infinite fountain of mercy. And thank you that, Lord, you call us into your presence and welcome us through Christ. No matter what we've done, we can come to you with confidence through Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and let's close with that song that we sang earlier, Come to the Altar. to the Lord. Bring it into the light. Ask Him for for mercy and forgiveness. Let Him know this is sin. And let Him do that. There's a freedom in that, folks. There's a freedom. If you're bound up, there's a freedom in that. Just be honest with God. Let's just take a few moments in silence and then we'll return to that song. not just confessing, it's turning. It's a 180 degree change of mind. Whatever that is, whatever it is you're looking at from the root, turn away from it. 
It's not doing you any good. It never will. You will never sin your way into happiness. Ever. You can sin your way into devastation. Turn away. Turn to God. Turn away from that sin and to God. That's what David does. And God will bring freedom to you. Healing. Restoration.